As we see the spiritual family of Jesus, before we even dive into the text, um, I just want to give a recognition to all of the women of the church. I became a pastor very young. I was a youth pastor at 23, and then I was interim lead here at 27. And so there have been a lot of women of this church who have been mothers to me, um, have been praying for me, were praying for me to find a wife and to get married, who then transferred that to praying for me to have kids and are are still praying for that, um, who would tell me I looked much better when I wore a tie on stage. So apologies to them as well. Um, And in the beginning... Um, it was really powerful and important that so many of the women of the church were praying for me, um, encouraging me, writing tiny notes to me, um, and all because of the family that Christ Jesus has given us. And we have biological family that are brought together um, by our blood that we share. We have a family in Christ because of the blood that He has given to us to make us that family. Let's dive in this morning. We are in our series on faith and doubt. This is our third week of a four-week series, and we are throughout it walking the journey of how do we hold in one hand our faith in Jesus while in the other, doubts and struggles in the process. We're going to this morning look at Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 specifically, and we're going to look at one of the gospel resurrection stories. And specifically today, we're going to look at the women in the story. So let's dive in, Mark chapter 16. Verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. You also have Bibles underneath half of your chairs if you want to pull that out and read along with, or on your phone or tablet you can follow along in the New Living Translation. Mark chapter 16. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome were out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, clothed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. Not saying it, but clearly an angel. The women were shocked, but the angel said, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you before he died. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. It never comes back void. May you speak to us of the encouragement and life in the resurrection. May you speak to all of the women of this church the central role in the gospel story that they served in and still serve in today. We thank you, God, that you are working through each and every one of us and that you have come from the grave. You have risen and conquered death. We pray this in your name. Amen. One of my favorite blogs when I was first uh, in ministry and when blogs were really cool, I would follow uh, a friend of mine and a distant acquaintance at the time, Kelly Delp, who was a missionary in Paris, France. And she pastored an international church in Paris, and she was single, and she was a female missionary who now pastored in one of the most difficult places to do Christian ministry in in the whole world, a secularized, multicultural city, and she pastored and really was a phenomenal leader in that setting. She also wrote a blog that was beautifully written, and one of my favorite things to look forward to every month when she would blog and reflect and write. At the time, she was processing through a lot of her own call into ministry and and faith and her own struggles with faith, belief, what happens when God responds or doesn't respond. In 2018, she wrote a blog specifically about unanswered prayer. And in it, she wrote, this is a direct quote, God cares about the little things, say many Facebook statuses, that celebrate finding a parking spot or getting a discount on their dog grooming. I usually have to close the app and walk away from it. Cool, God. I'm glad that they found a great parking space, I think to myself, that seems really life-altering, 
Kind of like deciding whether or not to answer someone's prayer begging you to let their mother live, I think to myself. She goes on in the blog to write about the journey herself of her mother dying of cancer, who did pass away just a year after that entry. And in it, she writes about the difficulty for us as followers of Jesus, where we celebrate sometimes God's responding in these little ways or this answer. I found a parking spot, praise God, and yet I'm praying also about some of the hardest things of my life and doesn't feel like God's responding there. How do we hold that and how do we understand? It feels like God cares about those little things. It really might not feel like he's caring about these big things in my life. The rest of her writing this particular month was about how to serve God when it feels like he's not answering your prayers. How do we trust when to our perception he appears untrustworthy? He's not answering. He's not responding. She ultimately, in this article, comes to the conclusion That what God has already done in Christ Jesus, in the narrative of the Bible, in the testimony of our lives, is enough. And is enough of a testimony that I can tomorrow pick myself back up again and I can next week pick myself back up again and re-enter into prayer and seek God to be the good, loving God, full of hope and promises that I know He already is through the testimony of what He's already done. As we talk about faith and doubt on this Mother's Day, I want to share some encouragement from the Gospel of Mark, specifically chapter 16. Now, let's give some background to this story in Mark. It is an odd passage in the Gospels. If you don't know, or if you had your app up or your Bible open, and I read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, and I finished at 8, you may look down and you say, well, there's notes, but then it's not done. There's another little short section, and then there's a much longer section. I'll give some background to that. Mark is a strange gospel book. Mark oftentimes leaves us with more questions than answers as to how God spoke to people, how he responded, the miracles and what they meant. And the ending of Mark can leave us both very encouraged and empowered, but also with a lot of questions. Because the traditional ending of Mark ends where we ended. And the last line is, and they left very terrified and scared and they said nothing to no one. That is very different from the ending of John where Jesus spends a long time explaining and guiding and loving and demonstrating his resurrected body. There are two additional endings to the Gospel of Mark. There's the shorter ending, if you have a Bible that has that noted, and then the longer ending. Both of those are additions about two centuries later, in the third century. Christians that read this letter from Mark about Jesus' life were somewhat unsettled by this abrupt ending. And so they said, we need to explain a little bit more. So they took other accounts from the other Gospels and they put it at the ending of Mark in order to say, this gives some more context doesn't mean they're wrong. It doesn't mean they're untrue. The latter portion is pretty much the ending of the Gospel of Luke. So they said, it's unsettling. Let's put other truths we know about the story at the end to give us clarity. But Mark writes a bang-zoom style, quick, powerful, and he often leaves us with exactly what happens and then trust the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to guide us forward. It's not super encouraging sometimes, but maybe Mark is trying to tell us here in this story, here's what happened, here is who Jesus is, and you from this story allow God to reveal to you what you believe. Can you stand on this? Is this true to you? And maybe Mark is also telling us that faith is not always so neat and tidy, doesn't always have two chapters of explanations and demonstrations. We don't always have, like Thomas, a moment of Jesus bodily showing up and saying, I'll answer all of your questions, touch every part of me, see every demonstration of it. We don't always get a gospel of John. Sometimes we get the gospel of Mark. And it's powerful and beautiful, but it leaves wide open questions. And maybe Mark is also telling us, you can be scared and believe. You can have doubt and be full of faith. And maybe some of our callings is to be like the young father advocating for his daughter and to say, I do believe and help me in my unbelief. 
Throughout this series, we've been talking about this journey specifically. What does this look like? How do we understand this? And we're using a framework here, and um, I decided to put it up every week, even though I'll, I'll deal with it shorter and shorter. The cycle of the construction of faith looks like this little triangle here. This is not just about Christian faith. This is about any faith. This is about any idea system or belief of how we believe about life, whether you, you know, strongly believe in, in the free markets and capitalism or whether you strongly believe in um, your own faith and journey. Whatever idea we hold to works like this. We have construction on one side. It's where we build our faith. Most of us, that happens in our childhood formative years. Your faith journey is probably very similar to your parents' faith journey or your siblings or the community that you were a part of, where you grew up in. Our faith often looks like that community. At some point in our journey, we come to the deconstruction, the turn of the triangle. That is maturity, adulthood, where we ask the question, is this belief system I grew up in my belief system? Can I own this? Do I trust in this? Does this make sense to me? And we ask questions. Why did we worship this way? Why did we go here? Why did I view this political party, this system, this view of humanity? Why do I hold these views? And we ask those questions. That's called deconstruction. It's breaking down larger ideas into smaller concepts so we can understand them and own them. Off of deconstruction comes reconstruction. And that's where, as an adult now, we say, all right, I challenge those views. Now, what do I believe? And where do we place those pieces into our life and our structure of how we view life? Throughout this series, my encouragement to you is, if you are on the pathway of deconstruction yourself, it is very tempting to get stuck there because asking questions and pointing out the flaws of others and idea systems and beliefs can be really empowering. I see you're full of it. I see that's wrong, this, and we can live our whole life on the sideline criticizing those who do or are. And the challenge is to make that turn into reconstruction. Who are we? What do we believe? Where is God leading us? For many women in the church, I'll just speak to this briefly. I've been involved in many church organizations and systems, and about 150 years ago, it became very, very clear that people held biblical views that women can't lead in ministry, can't lead in the home, can't serve as pastors or deacons or elders in the church, can't teach men. I do not hold that biblical view. I think it is a biblical methodology of reading specific verses without seeing them in the larger framework of the entire narrative. And that if I read Genesis to Revelation, would I come out of that and say, half of all people are not qualified to preach the gospel? No, I wouldn't. If I read the gospel stories and I read all four gospel accounts, the first people to witness the resurrected Jesus, the people entrusted to share the message that Jesus Christ is alive are women in all four gospel stories. When I read latter writings of Paul and other church leaders, I would have to say, how do I understand that verse? in the context of the biblical narrative of Jesus lifting up women, raising them up, entrusting them, and empowering them. And I'll give you one more little piece of it. Throughout the Gospels and in Acts, Acts 16 and Luke 8, who were the financial backers of all of the ministry of the Gospel? Women, y'all. They were the backers. They were the money, the breadwinners, the financiers. They were giving and supporting, moving the gospel forward. It says they paid for the ministry that Jesus was running. And then it says in Acts 16, Lydia and other wealthy financiers financed the church moving forward. Women, you are important. Women, you are called and you are empowered in ministry. We all are and are made in the image of Christ Jesus and are made again to preach the gospel if you want a longer version of that, I preached an entire message on this last year on Mother's Day. You can go back into Paynton AG archives and see that. It's not our main focus today, but I just love talking about that. We're going to look back into Mark 16. What's the biblical problem that's happening in these eight verses? And here's the truth I think we begin with. Women stayed with Jesus when it appeared they had nothing to gain. They stayed with Jesus they committed to Jesus, they came to worship Jesus, when to them it looked like it was over. 
They had nothing to gain from this. They had nothing to gain by going to the grave of Jesus and anointing his body with herbs and spices in order to worship him. They had nothing to gain and everything to lose. They were going to the grave of a radical revolutionary who had died a humiliating death under Roman law. They were risking everything and in their minds with the expectation to gain nothing. In all four Gospels, they came early in the morning to honor and worship Jesus. They were the first to come and honor a dishonored Savior because of their love for Him. Now, in Jewish culture, particularly in the ancient Near East in this time, they didn't embalm their bodies. Jewish culture did not. They weren't like Egyptians or other cultures. They didn't embalm them. So, three days in the grave... In a desert culture, Jesus' body was already not, would have been not great, would have already been kind of gross to go in there, and you don't normally bring the spices and these scents at this point. You would do it right away so that it would protect the scent over it. So they're going into a less than ideal situation. They're doing a service that really doesn't make any sense at this point. Also, the grave is sealed, and it's now embarrassing to follow this man. And I think one of the principles that we can see is that love does make us do illogical things. It does. Anybody ever, for the sake of love, done something illogical? Everybody else is a liar. We do this all the time, right? My heart is speaking to it. I know I shouldn't, but I just feel it so much. I've I shouldn't send the text. I got to do the two-day wait rule, but I gotta, I'm going to send it anyway. I'm just so excited. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send it anyway. I know we shouldn't go out for there two nights in a row. I look desperate, but I just want to see them again. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. We see that for the women that follow Jesus, there is a deep love and affection that is drawing them to do things that are irrational or illogical, but that's what love does. And it's a demonstration of the deep affection they had for this man who loved them and cared for them and demonstrated his beauty. Now, they have nothing to gain. And this is important to point out because this is not the following of most of the people that follow Jesus in the gospel accounts. That's not consistent. They followed Jesus partly because of the beauty of who he was for sure, but also because there was an expectation as to what he was going to do. It's why they, when he comes in, lay palm branches and coats down and sing Hosanna, because they believed he was a king come to remove the oppressive party of Rome. They believed he was coming to rule and reign. And so if I follow this man, it's going to be pretty good for me. If I support this man, it's going to be great for all of us. And so I'm following Jesus, not just for who he is, but for what I'm going to get out of him, for what he is going to do. We see an example of this in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 23, when two of his disciples ask for a future promise of glory. It goes like this. The mother of Zebedee's children, James and John, came to Jesus with her sons. She got down on her knees before Jesus asked something of him, or to ask Jesus of something. He said to her, what do you want? She said, say that my two sons may sit, one at your right and one at your left side, when you are king. Gutsy. Jesus said to her, you do not know what you are asking. Now, I see this passage coming out of two different scenarios, two ways that this came about. It's Mother's Day. Let's deal with this Mother's Passage. One situation is James and John, who were following Jesus, wanted glory and power, but were scared to ask for it themselves. So they go find their mom, and they're like, Ma, can you please talk to Jesus for us? We've been following him, and like, I... I'm scared to ask him, but I think he would respect you. So it's sort of this story of their mom coming and they're doing that thing where they're like peering around her and they're like, how's it going, Ma? Other scenario, they're following Jesus. They've been following for years. They gave up their life and their career. And maybe this is probably the more accurate one. They go into ministry and they're getting nothing out of it. And they've left their career behind, and their mom is going, 
Boys, you had a promising career as fishermen. A solid life, not glorious, but you had financial stability. And you're following this guy. He's great. I see it. He's, you know, he's doing these miracles. I think he's a great teacher. But like, what's your future with this guy? What? What's your financial outcome of this? You've been following for three years. This guy, you got nothing to show for it? Uh-uh. I'm coming, and I'm going to get your back here, and I'm going to ask Jesus to make sure your future is provided for. And they're like, oh, ma, don't do it. It's going to be embarrassing. And she's like, no, I'm taking care of you. You're not going to do it. You're not handling your own financial future. Mom's stepping in, and I'm doing this. I like to think that's probably more likely what happened. Someone being in ministry, I understand that conversation. The point is, what's happening here is, I will follow you with the expectation that I get something out of this, that you can promise me it's going to be good for me, that you can promise me I'm going to get wealth, I'm going to get power, I'm going to get X, Y, or Z. We know that most of Jesus' earthly followers followed him with the expectation that they would receive something out of it. And we know because every time in the Gospels, Jesus talks to a loud crowd and promises that he's going to die or makes an allusion to his suffering, it always says, and many left him after this. Not so for the ladies. Not true for them. They stuck through when it looked like they had nothing to gain. Let me walk it through you in the gospel narrative of the passion story. Mark chapter 15, verses 40 through 41. Some women were there. This is at the crucifixion of Jesus. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph. So the mom was asking, did come? And Salome, they had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. Famously, we know that in this story, most of Jesus' disciples fled. John stays, Peter fails miserably, leaves in disgrace, has to be restored. But we see a subtle message throughout the Gospels that the women didn't leave, that the women were there. It looks like his promises are over. We thought he was a Messiah come to save us. We thought he was a king come to rule. It very much now is obvious to us that's not who he was and is. That's not going to happen. But I'm not leaving him. I'm not abandoning him. Mark 14, verses 47, a few verses later. Sorry, Mark 15, verse 47, a few verses later. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. This means not just were they far away at the crucifixion as Jesus was suffering, but it means once they knew that he had died, they still followed to know where his grave was. They still followed in order to see what was happening with him, where his body was going. They went all the way to the grave, all the way, till it was cemented and permanent that he was not who they thought he would be. They said, doesn't matter, I'm there. Let's see a little bit about Mary. Mary Magdalene. She had been a part of the women who had taken care of Jesus in Galilee. She had traveled with Jesus to Jerusalem She didn't flee during the crucifixion, and she was there at his burial. And then in John 20, she meets Jesus as he calls her name. She has an experience with the resurrected Jesus. Now, if I was a Southern Baptist, I would say something sort of like this. She cared, was scared, mourned, adored, celebrated, and accelerated the good news of Jesus. This is Mary all the way through the process. Our problem in the modern day is that we often set goals that God has to achieve for our faith, right? I'll believe if you can. I'll believe when you do. We say things like, if that biblical view of God is who God is, I'm out. If he doesn't achieve the moral standards of what I have for him, I don't want to serve that God. 
And then we pray, and if he doesn't respond in the way we wanted him to or how we wanted him to, I don't think he's there. When we go through our own suffering in our own life or in church experiences, when God doesn't help us or protect us from a wound that we receive, he hasn't achieved the goals we've laid out for him, and so we begin to waver and doubt. God, I believe you may exist, but I don't think you're very good because you haven't or you didn't, or it seems like you won't. I can't believe in a God that would kill an entire people group as recorded in Joshua. I can't believe in that God. I can't believe in a God who would ask somebody to give up the life of their son. I can't, can't believe in that God. I can't believe in a God that would ask an abuser, I mean an abused, to forgive their abuser. Can't, can't believe in that. We do this little game too, right? God, I want to I take this step of faith, but I need some assurances from you. So I'll put my pen on this desk, and if the pen moves a little bit, then, I, then I'm in tomorrow. Like, just give me a little sign. And then we're like desperately looking at it. We're like, I think it wiggled. All right, good. I'm good. Oh, we're going to move. Or we take the Bible and we go, God, just say something to me. And if you do, I'm good for tomorrow. And we open it and we're like, Leviticus again. And then we're like moving on, right? There is a podcast I used to follow um, where it's an atheist and a Christian just kind of openly discussing their own life and doubts. And they share the story of one young man who lost his faith. And he shares the story of being on a youth group retreat as a senior in high school, sitting on the beach, struggling with his own faith. And he said, I stayed up all night from midnight until 6 a.m. And I sat on the beach and I said, God, I'm losing my faith in you. So demonstrate for me that you're real and I'll continue to serve you. But if you don't, I can't. And he said specifically, I want to see a dolphin on the coast. I want to see a dolphin. Show me a dolphin and I'm back in. He said, six hours, I waited on the beach. I looked and there was no dolphin. The sun rose. I walked back and I never believed again. This is part of the reason we get so mad at God. I have expectations of what you need to do now in this world for me in this moment. I need more evidence. I need an apology. I need the world to be like it was back in at this time. I need my faith to be like it was back in at this time. And when he doesn't respond in the way that we want him to, I'm either out literally or I'm out subtextually. I'll keep attending, I'll keep being a part, but inside, it's just, you know, this is a motion I'm going through, and, and that's okay. Let's see how God responds in the passage to this problem and this struggle. We're going to have to look back to see the context of it. Let's look at Luke chapter 8 to understand these women who were here at the resurrection. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus doing ministry. After this, Jesus went to all the cities and towns preaching and telling the good news about the holy nation of God. The twelve followers were with him, his disciples. Some women who had been healed of demons and diseases were with him. Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons put out of her, was one of them. Joanna, the wife of Cuzza, who was one of Herod's helpers, was another one. Susanna and many others also cared for Jesus by using what they had. Let's talk a little bit about Mary Magdalene. She doesn't get that much cred or, or conversation on Sunday mornings. But she is mentioned in the Gospels more than all but three of Jesus' actual disciples. You can kind of think of her as the fourth disciple in how much time she gets energy and focus in Scriptures. Mary Magdalene, her name Magdalene, of Magdalene means a town, a wealthy town known at the time, or it also can be translated as a castle or a palace. Both of these give us the understanding that Mary came from money. She was probably a pretty wealthy woman. Also, she's able to financially back the church, so clearly she has money. Which then means, how does a woman of wealth and means. Her name is Mary, a very traditional Jewish name at the time, which is why it's so confusing when we talk about Marys in Scripture, because there's like four of them in the gospel story. Mary Magdalene, wealthy woman, who then, it says really quickly, had seven demons cast out of her. And 
it seems like Luke considered it a somewhat unremarkable part of the story. He just moves on. He mentions it and keeps going. But the thought of this wealthy woman of means and probably status in their culture, somehow her life ended up where she was possessed by seven demons. I can't imagine the trauma that she had experienced in her life, the humiliation and the humbling journey of what that was like to go from where she was to where Jesus found her in that struggle of her life. It says seven demons. It could be literally the number seven, but seven is also in Scripture the number of completion. So it means either she was completely held by these demonic forces, or it means Jesus completely cast all of these demons out of her. And so we see this dramatic effect of where she went from to where she now was. Because of Jesus. He found her in the most humbling and humiliating, struggling, traumatic experiences of her life, he found her, he saw her, and he set her free. Luke actually uses the word healed, not, not cast out or exercised, healed. He healed her of the trauma and pain that she had been living under. He healed her of the bondage that she had lived with. And like the parable of the ten lepers, where some are healed and go on with their journey, but some come back humbled and full of gratitude to Jesus, what we see of Mary is her experience of being set free, she comes back and she's never the same. Many scholars actually say that Mary in the gospel seems to always understand what Jesus is doing on a level that the others don't. She sees his reasoning behind. She sees where he's going with it. She's present in there. Something happened transformational in Mary. And to be clear, Jesus transformed a lot of people in scriptures. Not all of them come back and live a dedicated life of following him. But something in Mary recognized, he has set me free so powerfully that I am, un- that I am completely changed. And this person This teacher, this man who claims to be God, is worth following with all of my life. And as we see in this passage, through to the very end. Mary did not follow Jesus because of what she wanted him to do, but because of what he had already done. I'm going to say that again. Mary did not follow Jesus because of what she wanted him to do, but because of what he had already done. He had set her free. He had restored her back to herself. He had recognized the trueness of who she was. He knew her name. He accepted her when no one else would. He touched her when no one else would. He called her out and declared that her life had value to him. Something Mary was able to recognize, that this person who set her free was worth following for the rest of her life, come what may. If he cares about me like this, if he can do that, if he is this real, then I'm going to follow him even if there's no future in it. This is what we learn of Mary in the resurrection. This is what we learn of the women in Mark 16. What he has already done for me is so powerful that I don't care what comes next. The promise can be nothing can be shame, can be loss, humiliation. I don't care because I see the depth of the worth of this man and who he is and what he has already done for me. He won't be king, so what? He's dead, we'll figure that out. I know who he is because of what he has done. For us today, We know this, we sing it, we declare it, but we need to live the truth that nothing today or tomorrow can change who Christ has called us to be. Nothing today or tomorrow can change it. No obstacle to come, no offense to come, no doubt or struggle to come can change what we already have in Christ Jesus. People can be mean, really super mean. As we've said, Church people and churches themselves can be painful and harmful and destructive. They can. Eugene Peterson says 
If we understand church as church is not saving us, the pastor is not saving us, our small group leader is not saving us, the church is a collection of sinners saved by grace with a person on stage teaching scripture who is a sinner saved by grace. And all of it points to Jesus, the perfect one who can save us by his grace. Then we can enter into that community with freedom and hope that no one in these chairs around me is going to save me Only Jesus Christ will. And I can show them grace as they show me grace because we are all sinners saved by His grace. It is easy in praying and asking and searching. I started with an example of a very serious one when we're praying life and death. That we can begin to forget what Jesus has done by each and every moment of what we want him to do and it doesn't seem like he's doing. What we want him to change and it doesn't feel like he's changing. We begin to forget that through his resurrection and the newness of life in him, he has changed life forever. As Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, and this is for us still today, he says, For by his loving favor you have been saved from the punishment of sin through faith. It is not by anything you have done. It is a gift of God. It is not given to you because you worked for it. If you could work for it, you would be proud. But we are His work. And He has made us to belong in Christ Jesus so we can work for Him. He planned that we should do this. We have already won through Christ Jesus. We have already been found in the depth of our own sin and lostness, and submission, and oppression to our own sin and decisions, Christ Jesus has already found us and set us free. He has found you. He has known your name. He has touched you and called you out when no one else could or would. And He has saved you and put you in a place of glory for eternity. Now, we do have a hope in the future, in the resurrection, that Christ will return and will make all things new again. He will remake this earth. He will bring heaven and earth together and we will be resurrected and all sickness and disease will be gone. We do stand on that hope. But the reason we stand on that hope is because of what he's already done. Now the second thing we see the women do, and we'll spend far less time on this, is that they didn't let obstacles distract them from their affection to Jesus. It says they're walking along and discussing that the stone is there. And they're like, well, we have no plan for this. The stone is there. We're not going to be able to move it. I have no idea how we're going to do this. We're not going to be able to get into the grave. And when we do, he's still going to be dead. But we're going anyway. We're going to keep walking. And I like this idea of them sort of walking and be like, does anybody know how we're going to do this? Nope. All right, are we going to have any possible chance to do this? Probably not. Are we going to go back? Nah, we're still going to keep going. The affection that they had for Jesus, the trust in who he was, the love they felt for him meant the obstacles in the way do not matter to the affection and love I'm going to show him. Mary was a very common name for Jewish female at this time. It's why we sometimes have this understanding of Mary that Mary was not just had seven demons cast out of her, but that Mary was also the sister of Lazarus. Mary and Martha, maybe, we don't totally know that, could be, or that Mary was the prostitute woman who came and washed Jesus' feet with her hair. Most likely, that is not Mary of Magdalene, but we've taken these stories, combined them together. This happened in the 4th century, uh, actually the 6th century, as one pope brought these ideas together and said, okay, this is who Mary is, and it wasn't for 1,400 years later that they finally set Mary free from the idea that she was a sinner and a prostitute. And said, we got that wrong for about a millennium and a half. And she was a follower of Jesus set free from her demonic oppression, but she was not a prostitute. And we've taken this important woman in Scripture and we've colored her in a way unfavorable. She is more important in the Gospels than most of the disciples of Jesus. Some call her historically the apostle to the apostles. 
because she brings the resurrection message to Jesus' disciples. And the angel tells her, go tell the rest of the disciples. Go tell the other apostles. You be the one. You go bring that message to them. In Mark 16, 3, we see this story. On the way, they're asking each other, who will roll away the stone from us? They know there's a problem. They don't know how they're going to overcome it. They don't seem to care because on the other side of the obstacle is Jesus. So I don't care what the obstacle is. Jesus is on the other side. We'll figure it out. We have in our real and modern day obstacles to our own faith. We do. They're real. And throughout this series, I do not want to trivialize them. We have real reasons to doubt. You've been hurt or let down by other Christian leaders, by other people who claimed to speak for Jesus or held an important role of that in your life, and they let you down. That happens. That's real. That's a real obstacle to faith that we have to overcome. You were maybe taught a version of the Bible, but then you got older and you realized that's not what the Bible says at all. And how do I now understand and put this all back together? That's a very real obstacle. You maybe grew up and you didn't have intellectual questions about your faith, and then you met really smart people who had really hard questions that you were then like, I have no idea what to do with this. These are obstacles to our faith. Real hurts, real doubts, real inconsistencies. And then they become an obstacle to the next step of faith you might feel God calling you to in your gut or in your mind, a call into ministry maybe, that God's calling you there, but you have real obstacles a call to serve more or to lead in the church community, but you have obstacles. A call to share or give more or support more in the church, and you have real obstacles. Paul did too. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, and 9, he says, Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all that you need. My power works best in weakness. There are things in our Christian faith that are obstacles that Christ will set us free from. There are things in our lives that are obstacles that shouldn't be, that are our own misunderstanding or misconception that we need to learn to let go of. And then there are very real obstacles that may stick with us for the rest of our Christian life here on earth. And we have to learn to live and walk with them. As Jacob, who becomes Israel, learns to walk with a limp for the rest of his life. As Paul says, I live my whole life with this thorn in my flesh. I don't know what yours is. The hurt that maybe you've experienced in church life, the struggles you have of how to understand Scripture, your own personal doubts of your prayer life, and how God does or doesn't respond in the timing in which you want Him to. But we see God does respond to this. We see it in Mark 16, verses 4 through 6 that Rachel read earlier. But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And the women were shocked, but the angel said, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. They didn't let the obstacle stop them from worshiping Jesus. And when they came there full of doubt, they found the obstacle had been removed. Not just removed... But actually, their reason for coming was also gone. Have you ever had God respond to a prayer like too much? It's like too well. God, give me an opportunity to share faith. I just want to be more open and sharing. And then you had a close coworker be like, I've just been struggling with all these doubts and I just need hope in my life. And you're like, oh no, this is too soon, too quick. I, not, not like this. Or you've prayed, God, give me patience in my life. And then that week, you're in three hours of traffic, and you're like, no, I didn't want, not this. God, God, give me opportunities to serve you. And then he's like, lead this small group. Give me opportunities to serve you. He's like, here's a call into ministry. Give me opportunities to serve. And he's like, go on this trip on the other side of the planet. And you're like, you answered too much. I, it was a modest prayer, and I wanted a modest answer. 
for these women, they wanted the stone to be rolled away so they could worship the, the dead body of a man that they loved. And they're expecting and they're praying for God to open this opportunity. But he like, he goes too far with it. It's too much. I just wanted the stone gone. Not an angel sitting there declaring that Jesus is now alive. I don't have frameworks for that. And it's one of my favorite things about the ending to Mark. Is that they leave terrified, full of fear, and they say nothing to no one. They do the opposite of what the angel says. He's like, don't be scared, but go and tell everybody what happened. And they leave and they're like, I'm super scared and I'm not telling anybody what happened here. This is often a faith journey for most of us. The, even the first moment that we come into faith or the moments where we take a leap in our faith, a, a, new, a new era of faith, God speaking or setting us free from something, the moment that happens is both a moment of extreme joy and fear. I don't know if you're anything like me, but when God shows up, I also fear this like immense pressure of like, well, he answered what I, my doubt, so now I got to, now I have to. He showed himself. Now I gotta, now I gotta do all this stuff. God has done, as Paul would later say, exceedingly more than we can imagine. And it's scary. When God starts to move in our lives, when he removes our obstacles of faith, when he heals you of that church wound that you've been holding on to, when you turn a corner in your Bible reading and it goes from being Sunday school stories that you struggle with now to this large, beautiful narrative of God coming and redeeming His people that He has made and loved. When you're praying and you feel like you're praying to a wall and one moment the wall breaks through and you hear God's voice or He speaks into the depth of your soul and you feel that love and you feel that presence. It can be scary because I said I wouldn't believe unless, and then he did that thing that I wanted him to do. Or most likely for me, this is how God has spoken into these moments where I've unfairly set goals for him. He didn't say, I'm going to do that goal. What most of the time he did is he pointed backwards in my life and said, I already did that. You're asking for strength in this situation to have that conversation, I already gave you my spirit, man. He's in you. You can do this. When I ask to overcome a sin, and I'm like, God, set me free from this sin, he points back to the resurrection and the cross, and he says, I already set you free from that sin. When I ask God to give me an opportunity of new people, new directions, he points my eyes around and says, look at the community around you already. I already gave you those people. The grace for us in being followers of Jesus is not to hear a story like this and to hear the story of Mary and to say, okay, I have faith regardless if I don't ever expect God to do anything ever again. Okay, I do that. It's, he's not calling us to have an Eeyore faith. All right, God, you already resurrected, so I don't need anything else. I'm just going to live my life in misery, and that's okay. I worship you. That's not what he's asking us to do. What he's asking us to do is to look back on what he's already done and to see that as the assurance that he is going to do everything he's promised us he's going to do. And to continually say, look back at what I have done. Look back at who I am. Look back at my character. Look back at the promises. And in this moment of your struggle and doubt, you can see that I came through, did come through, and will come through again. This is what Mary is able to do. It's why she's able to walk through disappointment after disappointment because she looks back at Luke 8, didn't know it was Luke 8, and she said, I remember this moment when he set me free. I remember this moment when he called out my name and called me in to who I was truly made to be in his presence and in his power. Men and women of the church, we already have it. He's already done it. He calls us to live in that presence and power. If you pray with me this afternoon.
God, in this moment, many of us are on a journey of knowing you and knowing you better. Maybe we're like Paul and we have a thorn in our flesh that we're like, God, just answer that or take that away. Maybe we're like Mary and we're like, I don't know where this is going, but I trust you in it. I ask, Lord, that for each and every one of these men and women here in the room today, God, that you would speak to us about who you've already made us to be. That you would place in our hearts and in our minds the fullness of the power of the resurrection. That Jesus, you conquered the grave. That Jesus, you took on our sin and death. That Jesus, you confronted the forces of evil. That Jesus, you are enthroned as king and ruler of this world. And that we can trust, God, that all will be made well because of who you have already shown yourself to be. And God, may every time we come up against an obstacle, a doubt, a faith, may we be able to look back and see and hear the promises that you've fulfilled and the promises that you have made to us that we are your family, that we are forgiven, that we are called and made new in the beauty of your presence and power, Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity with heads bowed and eyes still closed. If this morning you are here, um, maybe somebody brought you here, it's Mother's Day, so maybe your mom or you are someone's mom and they brought you here and you're not a person of faith, I just want to give you a chance just to pray a prayer of reassurance of the goodness of Jesus in your life. And I'll invite you to pray this prayer with me. If you are a follower of Jesus, use it as a moment to recommit that God in this moment, I recognize what you've already done for me. That you came to this earth to call me back to you, to declare my worth and value to you, my maker. And that Jesus, you lived a perfect, beautiful, righteous life and that on the cross you took my sin and death and you died in my place. You were buried and on the third day you rose from the grave full of life and life eternal and that by trusting in you I can have that fullness of life and life eternal. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.